You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what is top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson. Today, I'm joined by Tracy Mayleaf, who many of our listeners know as InfoSec Sherpa on Twitter. Tracy's daily information security and privacy newsletter and open source intelligence and industry news blog is followed by thousands as a critical resource for practical guidance and understanding the latest security cyber trends. Tracy is a well-known and recognized member of the InfoSec community, having received the Women in Security Leadership Award from the Information Systems Security Association, and she's been featured in the Tribe of Hackers Cybersecurity Vice and Tribe of Hackers Leadership Books. Most recently, Tracy joined the Krebs Stamos Group, a cybersecurity consulting firm co-founded by former director of CISA Chris Krebs and Alex Stamos, the founder of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Tracy's previous roles where she served as information security analyst at the New York Times Company and was a cyber analyst for GlaxoSmithKline. However, this is where I want to start our conversation today. So welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, Tracy, and also tell us what kind of tea you're drinking. Sure, and thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and I am proudly drinking Yorkshire Tea, right from England, their Malty Biscuit Brew, which, as per the box says, tastes like tea and biscuits, and it is truth in advertising. It does taste like that. That's absolutely fascinating, and I will have to add that to my tea repertoire. I have... I have like containers of tea all over my kitchen counter that the family just kind of looks at and shakes their head because they're coffee drinkers and I'm not. So I have all different kinds of teas. I think I can add that one to the collection. You definitely should. Yeah, York, the Yorkshire teas are great. And I, I'm hoping they contact me for a sponsorship because I would, <laughs> I would appreciate that. But yes, uh, definitely. Uh, I am a tea drinker. I'm a coffee drinker as well. But like you, I do enjoy a fine tea. Ah, well, and it's it's perfect for the show. I'm usually drinking lemon ginger for afternoon cyber tea just so I can keep my voice <laughs> in the place it <laughs> needs to be. So can we start by talking about misinformation and disinformation? Look, they're top of mind for many of our listeners, and you have worked for two industry giants, the New York Times and GlaxoSmithKline. So you have a media company and you have a healthcare organization who are both industries that have become key targets of disinformation. Having been on the inside of these companies, Can you share with our listeners a behind-the-scenes look at the approach these organizations take to cybersecurity, but also the role that cyber plays in these industries in keeping information safe? Absolutely. Well, of course, I'm not sure how much I can divulge, but generally speaking, having good threat intelligence is key for companies like, like them to know what disinformation is being purported about them out in the world, uh, because that misinformation could then lead to threats against them or having hacktivists assemble towards a common goal of going after the Times or, or GSK, which is definitely things that, that I saw happening. So what it kind of boils down to is having good OSINT skills 
on your security team were important. And I can give you an example of exactly that. I believe I was looking at Reddit one day. I'm not sure if that was where I was looking, but the, the gist of it is I saw a piece of paper posted and the comment was that someone found this piece of paper outside of a GSK location and on it, was filled with chemical formulas. And immediately I thought, oh no, is this proprietary information that somebody dropped and it was found? So I knew enough to have that escalated and have someone who passed chemistry, unlike myself, (laughs) who could (laughs) read and decipher it and find out, you know, is this something of concern and, and what other steps do we need to take? So it came back that it it really wasn't anything other than just chemical formulas. It wasn't anything proprietary. But, you know, having found that, actually, now that I remember it, I think it was actually the quote-unquote dark web. I think I was on an Onion site and found that posted because I think the person thought that it was something valuable that they found. But being able to have those research skills and those OSINT skills are really crucial for, for understanding what's being posted out there about you. Another thing that I used to deal with with the times that, again, I don't think I'm giving away any secret sauce, but using OSINT skills, you would come across places in the world that were lifting New York Times content and posting it word for word on their own site and either pretending that it was theirs or trying to act like they were some sort of authorized distributor for the New York Times. So again, using OSINT skills and threat research and things like that, you would find these these sites and then, you know, report them through the appropriate channels. But that's really the biggest way, to be honest, in in my opinion, from what I observed, is just having those good OSINT skills, research skills, and threat intelligence to understand what's being said about you, because that could easily take a quick turn and become a threat. You know, we have this information that's so readily available to us because of social media and because of the internet and because of our global real-time and high-speed connectivity. I was just moving that example into even the human domain. A a friend of mine has recently started dating again after a very long-term relationship ended. And She's amazed because she'll tell me about, you know, a person that she's dating and maybe not just one date, but has gone out with. And I'll come back with this wealth of information about them. And she's like, how did you find that? I mean, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, it's all publicly available. You just have to know where to look. I said, there's nothing, you know, there's very little hidden, right, in digital footprints, which is both a blessing, right? Because we can solve really hard problems because we're really connected globally. But it's also this ability to spread misinformation and disinformation so quickly. And then to your point, how do organizations actually keep their IP safe and keep their, you know, their potential proprietary information from actually landing in some website or some form or some, you know, something like a Reddit or even in the dark web. It's it's an amazing challenge that obviously continues to keep us on our toes. And when you think about the change, you know, from security and the and this threat landscape that's ever increasing and this tsunami of information that we'll talk about in a minute. But you know, based on your experience and and your expertise and all the things you and I have just discussed, what surprises you? Does anything surprise you? And if so, what? Probably just some of the boldness of some of it surprises me that 
you know, things that people will will post to to harm others. That that's probably just. I guess I should be numb to it by now. But just some of the the audacity that people have of posting things. And and honestly, the the number one thing that I that really bothers me, and it doesn't seem to be going away, is any more people feel free just to take photos in public and post it and you know, you didn't consent to having your photo taken or posted on social media. And whether it's someone making fun of you or just a group shot or something, um, you know, that person maybe didn't want to be photographed where they were for a variety of reasons. You know, in our community, we have a lot of people who keep a low profile for for security reasons, for for their job and their own personal safety. So I really am disappointed by this this new trend that that people seem to think that if you're out in public, you're fair game to be captured and posted without your consent and without any context. And again, that's how misinformation, disinformation spreads. And and then there's always the malinformation of the people posting things intentionally that that are wrong, which, you know, we don't have enough time to get into the whole COVID misinformation, uh, disinformation, malinformation. But that I really like that you, you tapped on this because this is something that with my background as a library sciences professional, it really concerns me that there's not more standards in place uh, especially in, in cybersecurity for how we we post information, how we obtain information. And I actually created a talk, which fortunately was accepted by ShmooCon, but unfortunately, because they changed the dates, I had to withdraw. But my talk is called Information Literacy Makes for Better Information Security. And it's where I talk about you know, the proper ways and methods that are time and tested of finding information, citing sources, the difference between primary, secondary, tertiary sources. What do you do with that information? That means a lot to me, and I'm very passionate about that because I want to to try to make a dent in all this misinformation and disinformation that's out there. So I want people to have the tools to be able to cut through the nonsense and get to the truth. Yeah, it's, you know, we had Dr. Fiona Hill on the show a few months ago, and she was talking, I asked her to define the difference, right? What is the difference between dis- disinformation, misinformation? You know, the moderation is hard, by the way. You know, we criticize a lot of the social media channels because of their inability to do content moderation at scale. But people who are actually putting disinformation out there know how to work around the content moderation systems. They understand Mm -hmm. what the systems and the algorithms are looking for, and they know how to work around it. And I think it's going to be a continual challenge for those of us in tech to try to stem this flow of, especially, as you said, deliberately malicious information that's put out there. One of the things that's so interesting, Tracy, is this debate about um, one of the social media channels, and I think it was Twitter, recently said, look, we're not going to let anyone tag you in a picture without your, you know, post and tag you in a picture without your permission. One of the challenges that people mentioned is that some vulnerable populations use pictures and videos to call out abuse, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you actually balance those two things, this risk that's created, to your point, by people who want to and need to, for their own personal safety, not be tagged in social media? and using social media as a way to protect vulnerable populations. These are really hard challenges, and I think there's not enough nuanced conversation around them. And I know from your background, by the way, you have this incredible background in corporate and academia, and you mentioned being a librarian and going to cybersecurity. 
how does that, you know, when you think about these really hard problems, I'm assuming your abstract thinking around them and your concrete thinking around them are going to be different than someone that came up purely on the technical side. Yeah, I definitely think so. I And I can't explain how, but I just knew that my library and information science master's degree would be a big asset to information security. So when I was looking at doing a career change, I knew I wanted to get into tech, but I didn't know exactly which area of tech. And I very quickly was drawn towards cybersecurity, which I, I joke is because I had the revelation that my natural paranoia and distrust of things was a career path. Um, but it, it helps me look at information differently and organize information differently and you know, you really have to understand that you you prepare, you aggregate, you curate, you archive information with the usability in mind. So I see a lot of people who in tech and, and security think they're being helpful by by crafting playbooks or guides or things like that, but they're not really good organized information. So just because you can find it and you can understand it, you need to think outside yourself. You need to think, can somebody pick this up? You know, especially if you're writing playbooks and you're, a, and you're in a sock. Are you writing your playbooks that a new hire can come in and immediately understand what's going on and what's happening? So that's what I, I try to highlight, you know, when I give talks or just give advice to people, that there's ways to organize information that you have to make sure that it can be understood or, or it doesn't then what's the point? There's no point of it. It's just, it's just garbage. So that's kind of what I, I try to help with. And and my big one is, is that I like to emphasize to folks that they have to be mindful of what, from where they're getting their information. I talk about provenance a lot in my talks and I always joke, it's not a place in France. Uh, it's, you know, the origin of information. And that's really important because I explained to people, look, I worked in law firm libraries for 10 years. And when I did research, I had to make sure that what I was, was submitting and handing over could ultimately be admissible in court. Yeah, because that was a possibility. So I had to be absolutely dead certain that what I was handing over was verifiable, was accurate, and I had some sort of trail. And when I say this to InfoSec folks, a lot of them say, well, you know, well, this is never going to go to court, but I've raised the issue, but you don't know where it's going. You don't know what you're handing over. It could make its way to the boardroom of your company where they're using it to base major company and financial decisions. So I just tell people, you know, assume that you don't know where this information is going to wind up. So why don't you make absolutely sure that it's verifiable, that it's good information, and it's it's from a, re a reliable source, a source that you can point to to say, like, this has validity. And that's a lot what I cover in my talks and something I'm just very passionate about. Because I think also stemming back to the misinformation and disinformation, I think that if we were more mindful of that in our community, it would really uh, make things a little bit easier to digest all this information that's coming at us constantly. Yeah, and I think the curation of information is important. And I, I want to read you a statistic, too, actually. The first one is that by the year 2025, which is three years from now. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. <laughs> think about that. Yeah, I know. Humans are going to create more than 175 zettabytes of data. In addition, in the, by the year 2025, 75% of the workforce will be millennials and Gen Z who think about privacy a lot 
differently than the prior generations. Mm -hmm. And you have this specific tagline behind your Twitter (laughs) handle, which says, your guide to a mountain of information. I love that, by the way, because we have this impending tsunami of data, right? We also have a generation coming into the workforce that thinks about data and privacy differently. So I would love to understand both the inspiration behind your Twitter handle, but also how we are going to be evolving. What are your predictions, you know, if you could, for how we're going to be evolving the way we think about data? Sure. Well, I'll address the origin, my my origin story (laughs) of my name. So I actually started out as Library Sherpa, which is still an active account that I've had since I want to say 2006 or 2007, I was an early adopter of Twitter. And it was your guide up a a stack of information, I think it was. I had a very similar similar tagline because that's how I see myself. I see myself as a helper, as a guide. I I want to help people. So I want to help them. At that time, it was understand legal information research and other research. And the reason why I created that is because the law firm I was working at at the time, my library manager was very concerned about me writing blog posts under my real name and or using the firm name in my byline, which in hindsight was a little silly that she was telling me I couldn't even use my own name, even if I didn't attribute the firm where I worked. So you know, kind of like how Prince created the symbol <laughs> to get out of contracts or for, for legal reasons, I created Library Sherpa so that I could still write blog posts. And I, I came up with this, you know, the zen of it that I want to be a guide up a mountain of information. So that's how that that started. And then when in 2015, when I decided to dip a toe in the security world, I created what initially was just a, a lurker account called InfoSec Sherpa, which has now <laughs> grown a lot. And that is how I'm known. And I will answer to it if someone meets me in person. So, uh, so that's the story behind that. So Going back to your question, I love that you were use the word tsunami because there's actually a quote that has guided me for a long time back when I was a librarian. And the quote is, in the nonstop tsunami of global information, librarians provide us with floaties and teach us to swim. And that quote was by Linton Weeks. And that really has been my driving force for, and even into InfoSec, that I want to be the person that is going to help help you swim. You know, I will do my best based on all the training that I have, this Master's of Library and Information Science degree I have from the University of Pittsburgh, go Panthers, that, you know, I have all this knowledge that I want to help share and help people. A lot of this just comes to me naturally. You mentioned my newsletter, you know, thank you, earlier. And people always ask me, how do you find all these stories? How how are you able to find these things that nobody else is able to find? You know, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. I've been doing this for a long time. I have it down and I'm trying to share the fruits of that with everyone. So, yeah, information, the data overload is definitely concerning because there's, there's there's the security concerns, there's the storage concerns, and yeah, the privacy concerns. And something that has struck me, as you said, talking to generation what are we calling them Z or, or Z or whatever you, <laughs> you call them? The Gen Z folks. Yeah, they do 
they do regard privacy very differently. Uh, for example, a, a young woman I know recently said something to me about, oh, you should join Strava so, you know, I can follow where you walk or something like that. And I, you know, raised my concerns to her. And, you know, she's been in of that age group that probably never really truly knew privacy to begin with, if you think about it. I mean, how many of these 20, early 20-year-olds, 20 their, their parents have been posting about them online in some form, for, you know, basically all their lives. I mean, especially I would say high schoolers and middle schoolers, right? They're, they probably have the most chance of their entire lives being captured from birth till now. So yeah, they probably don't even know what privacy was like. Whereas me being Gen X, my mother wouldn't let us wear clothing that had our name on it because in the 80s, the the fear was someone would see your name on your clothing and talk to you as if they knew you, yeah. which, which as an adult, I thought that's also kind of selling kids short that I would just assume that someone knew me because they knew my name and maybe forget that I was wearing clothing with my name on it. But I digress. But my mother, and now we didn't call it OPSEC, but I realized in hindsight that my mother was very astute with OPSEC and way before her time because, yeah, anything that that revealed my name and all she, or, you know, and, and my sisters as well. But yeah, she was very protective of that. And that definitely taught me some lessons early. I didn't, it all came together now that I'm in InfoSec uh, because, you know, for a period of time, you think it's a burden and you think your mother's being weird. But now I appreciate, oh, okay, I understand why she did that. And maybe that was a little too extreme, but I can appreciate the, you know, the warning of it. So I will tell you that I wrote a blog a few years ago, and I couldn't tell you exactly when, but I'm probably going to post repost it, that talked about, you know, teenagers and privacy and expectations. And the what your mother was doing with OPSEC, I grew up the same generation, right? You know, you can't have your name on your clothing or your backpack because you, it'll create familiarity and someone may kidnap you and, you know, lure you mm -hmm. away. That is not, you know, the expectation I have. By the way, I have a Gen Z daughter, right? And she just rolls her eyes at me when I talk about social media controls and, you know, location things and not talking about. And, and she's finally, I think, understanding personal safety more than she was when she was younger. But it, it's interesting because people are bringing those, going to bring those same views into into work, right? So how do organizations protect their intellectual property and protect their all of their the things that they do or they're very proprietary with this generation of folks that are used to having things that are much more open and anything goes on, you know, whatever social media channel that they're on. It's going to be interesting. We're not going to solve it today, but it's going to be an interesting <laughs> thing to think about, right? Well, I would like to give you a quick OPSEC overprotective mother pop quiz brain teaser, if I may. So my mother always said to me growing up, if you ever go between Los Angeles and San Francisco, you can only go south to north. You can only go from LA to San Francisco. I do not want you going from San Francisco to LA. Why did she say that to me? I don't know. Because if you go from south to north, you stay on the right-hand side of the road and you hug the coast, whereas if you go north <laughs> to south, you're along the guardrail and the cliffs. So that is something that for some reason my mother thought was important to instill in me from a young age. 
that's a fascinating analogy. By the way, that's that makes it real, right? It's something that people can mm-hmm. see and is tangible. Yeah. All right. We should get back on course. So um, <laughs> look, I, I talk a lot about enterprise cybersecurity, but I actually want to talk for a second about consumers and have you talk about oh, consumers. Sure. You know, consumers are much more aware of attacks than ever before, but the security news is overwhelming to them. We use this weird lingo that the average human doesn't understand. What do you think are the most critical issues that consumers are facing? And more importantly, what can the industry do to help them? Sure. Uh, well, I think the the most important thing to, to realize right now is there's not really a choice anymore. You pretty much have to get a smart appliance or a smart device. It's getting harder and harder to have quote unquote dumb devices. So that's really giving consumers less options, right? I mean, if they do want to find something that's a quote-unquote dumb device, then it's probably going to be lesser grade quality and and things like that. So that's really unfair to the consumer. You know, I said years ago on a podcast when I was just getting into InfoSec, I recognized it then, that the only way that any changes are going to happen on behalf of consumers are going to come through litigation or legislation. And neither one moves very quickly, (laughs) do they? And it's that kind of thing that, you know, history repeats itself. And I think we need to look back at, you know, Ralph Nader and his campaign for, for seatbelts, right? You know, he was an advocate for seatbelts and now it's, it's a law. So there's a lot of grassroots campaigns that really need to start. And companies aren't going to get the message about requiring security and baking it in, not bolting it on until consumers boycott products or there's grassroots campaigns since you know similar to to Ralph Nader's and and that's what's really really sad is that a lot of consumers just aren't even aware of the full spectrum of the privacy and security or lack thereof features with these products and it's not because they're they're dumb or they don't care it's it is confusing and there's not really easy ways to break this down and i i think there's a real responsibility on the manufacturers to to lay that out more clearly of you know this is what this product does you know this is how you can turn things off you know or this is what we're collecting whether or not we have your consent let people make make decisions you know let let them make the choice you know oh i am okay with it collecting this information or i am not but that's that's what i think is the most scary thing is just that there's really no choice anymore you that's the only products on the market and it may not be clear what exactly is being collected if they're not forthcoming about it. I mean, how many times have we heard stories about, you know, TVs having listening capabilities that people were unaware of? So that, that's what's really a shame is that, that this has really kind of gotten out of the hands of the consumers and in, and the manufacturers are ruling and, it's just it's hard to to clamp down on that. And like I said, legislation or litigation, it's just gonna be slow coming. So I, I think it it needs to be more of a groundswell effort to for groups to help educate folks. I know I see online there's lots of websites that give very clear instructions that you can go to specific sites and how to turn off or on certain privacy and safety features. Like we need more guides like that. I'd like to see something come from from CISA, you know, for example, of 
you know, something more standardized rather than this piecemeal instructions of how to how to do things. I, I think if you give consumers choices and the ability to make make decisions about these products, then I think everyone will be safer eventually, or at least just aware of of what they're getting into when they buy a new refrigerator that has a monitor in it. You know, I think the other thing, though, that's important is, and I want to switch to a couple things, but I think the other thing that's important, though, for consumers is they need to actually read the terms of service. But most importantly, they need to go to the privacy and security settings of every app they're using and adjust them to their preference. They need to understand the preference. Most people do not do that. They download apps and it's whatever the default setting is, and then they're surprised that they're sharing their data or they're giving something away. Mm-hmm. They need If you're going to download an app, take the personal responsibility to understand the privacy and security settings and set them to your comfort level, whatever that is. And I I just think this incredible awareness raising for consumers is so important. Absolutely. And and I know that a lot of InfoSec professionals are already tired, but still, to the best of your ability, even if if it's just on your Facebook page, like I I use Facebook really just for family and, and close friends, I will post articles like that or instructions if I know that there's a Chrome update or something like that, I will, I already have it typed out and I just re- repost it. Remember, this is how you check, you know, update your iOS system or your, your browser. And it just takes a few seconds and I know that people appreciate it. So, you know, yeah, we, we have the knowledge and the ability to, to help people. And I just, I, I think that to the much as you're able to, people should take initiative to try and share that with people in their inner circle. Just try to keep more people aware of of, of what's going on with these apps and devices and, and appliances they're buying. I agree. So let's talk about one last thing. This, these have been incredible insights. And we try to send our listeners off with one or two key takeaways. But before you get to key takeaways, what are you <laughs> working on right now? What's exciting to you? Oh, well, I am working on just continuing my newsletter. Just I'm always looking for new ways to make it more impactful, more useful to people. I think that I'm going to be creating a new crypto secure cryptocurrency security focused newsletter. I have transportation, I have Caribbean, I have African newsletters, and I'm starting to get interested in the security aspects of crypto uh, currency. I personally don't have any interest in cryptocurrency myself, but I am very intrigued in the the security aspects of it and the legislation and litigation that's that's surrounding it. And also just mentoring. I I work a lot with groups in Africa to help the infosec students and professionals there. I really want to create a more level playing field so that they can interact more. Africa is an emerging power when it comes to cybersecurity, and I want more people to realize that. And also underrepresented folks in tech and infosec here in North America. I do what I can to individually help people, or I get involved with a lot of groups to try and help them through fundraising or making recommendations. Uh, but yeah, I just I just want to help people. That's <laughs> that that's my mission in life. I I, I lead my professional existence under the, the phrase, there's a phrase in, in Hebrew called tikkun olam. And it basically means like repair the world, heal the world. And that's my my driving factor as an infosec professional. Every day I try to do one thing that either heals or repairs 
the infosec world around us. And I just do the best that I can. That's that's a beautiful way to think about it because this is mission driven, purpose driven work for most cybersecurity troop you know professionals. Last bit, I'll put you on the spot. What are a couple of takeaways that you think our listeners could do right now to either improve their consumer security or the security of their organization? Well, two-factor, two-factor, two-factor. It should already be enabled, but I want more people to embrace multi-factor authentication. I want more companies to require it. Um, And I just, I, I think that that will will make a lot of progress in having people have their their information protected. And the other thing I'd like to see progress on, and this is something that I talk about a lot, and I created a, a actually a, a speech about it, which is empathy is a service to create a culture of security. I want information and tech, your tech's not, not absolved from this either. I want tech and information security professionals to be more empathetic and compassionate, not only to each other, but to all of the consumers of technology and security products. I was pretty much shocked when I came from Library World into this world to see the contempt and disdain a lot of people hold for the users. And they're the reason why we have jobs. So, and there's a really great quote, and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name. It's a Gota. I know I never took German in, in school, but he has a quote about you know, basically people act the way you treat them. So if you treat your users as, oh, they're stupid users, they can't do anything, um, well, then they're just going to keep doing that then. But if you empower your your users and educate them in a a supportive way, they're going to be your infantry. They're going to be your front line, especially when I was at a large organization like GSK. They were the ones who were getting the phishing emails first and letting us know about them. So those are the two things I'd really like to see is is more embracing of multi-factor authentication, especially in a way that it's more user-friendly for some um, parts of the population that it might still be kind of a scary thing for them. And just also more empathy, compassion, and understanding on the behalf of all the companies and professionals. Uh, And just, you know, treating people with respect and dignity when it comes to privacy and security matters and not treating them like they're, they're stupid. And being really aware that different populations have different privacy and security needs. So it's not one size fits all. And that's why diversity is mission critical. Tracy, thank you so much. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to end the episode. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank our listeners for joining us also. And join us again on the next episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea and listen to us at AfternoonCyberTea.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So I chose Tracy Mayleaf to join me on Afternoon Cyber Tea because she has this really wide and varied experience from working at the New York Times, for being at GlaxoSmithKline, she's at the Krebs Stamos Group now, but she has a background in library science. And when you think about this tsunami of data that we have coming in the world that the world is creating, it's necessary to have actually somebody who understands how to process and organize the data so the data becomes useful for us. And I think you'll find This episode was really, really informative. She was a wonderful guest. It was a pleasure to have her on.
This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. <laughs>